Hey, this is Jimmy Malone on the road again, driving around with Jimmy. Volume, I guess, one. I don't know. Lots of te technical difficulties, all kind of things going on this morning. But I'm going to throw some stuff out there about movement because that's, that's what I've committed the rest of my life to. Actually, I've always been working toward movement. We've called it something different sometimes during the years. But I came to Jesus, and I wanted to tell all my friends about Jesus, and I wanted everybody to know about Jesus. And uh, the first thing that God ever told me on the day he called me to serve him forever in ministry, which was my 16th birthday in Jacksonville, Texas, which was crazy because I, I didn't live in Texas. But anyway, um, God spoke to me about winning my town, my, my city to Jesus. And, uh, and that was what he wanted me to do, which was just insane. And it was so big that even when I told my friends, I was like, yeah, God told me I'm supposed to win my high school to Jesus. But he didn't say high school. He said city. And he said two things. He said, I want you to, to win your high school, win your city to Jesus. And I'm going to keep adding people to help you until, until it happens. Well, that's, you know, the, the formation of an idea of movement, because I didn't realize at the time what that would take. And I didn't win my city or my high school to Jesus. I, I, I was a busy bee, and I did a lot of things. And I was preaching on the street, did all kind of crazy stuff. And uh, just it, it, a lot of cool stories came out of that. But uh, strangely enough, at this point in my life, I'm back in the same town that I lived in when God called me to ministry, which is uh, very unusual. I did not expect it. Uh, we had some family things go on, and I'm, I'm in my wife's hometown. And uh, which is where I went to high school. And here I am again, seeking God for movement. But we called it revival sometimes during the years. Now, I remember hearing about revival and reading about the, the revivals with Charles Finney and Jonathan Edwards and, uh, you know, the, the Hebrides revivals and the, you know, stuff going on. And, uh, you know, in Manchuria with Jonathan Goforth. And I mean, just moves of God, you know, the Welsh revival. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, you know, all these things that we hear about. And so I became very entranced with a revival, not because of the excitement of it, not because I wanted to feel some kind of chill bump or just, you know, see something supernatural happen, but because it, it, it looked so much like winning whole cities to Jesus. And that was the thing that was the stamped on my soul from the very formative minute moment. You know, when I came out of the forge, I had that, that die cast into me of of the you know that impression of win a city win cities and i see it in the scripture i see it in the bible i see i see all of asia coming to jesus and spending two years and all this and so um you know god really began to put that in my heart at a very early christian experience and uh so i've seen moves of god in smaller areas where there were there was something that was maybe short-lived or something that was maybe very local in scope, but it was undoubtedly supernatural. Like, there's no way. I mean, God just started bringing people in, and people came to Jesus. But one of the things that I began to happen is that as I began to labor for souls, I didn't see the fruit that remained. And I didn't see generational fruit. I didn't see the souls that I was winning, winning souls. And so I began to seek God and, and led through different avenues to the place where I discovered um, the disciple-making movement, and uh, also right there with it, the church planning movement, which are, you know, 
their uh, their aims are different, but a lot of their means are the very similar. Uh, and so, you know, we have this idea of disciples who make disciples who make disciples, and uh, then you can just exponentially ratchet that up to plant churches and plant churches and plant churches. So when you look at movements, when you study movements throughout the years, you study John Wesley and the, the Methodist movement, you, you begin to study the Moravians, if you don't know about the Moravians and about Hearn Hutt and, 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 and uh, you know, Zinzendorf and all these guys, just, you, just dude, you, you need to check that out. It was really the first Protestant missionary movement ever. It was a bunch of uh, bivocational lay people who were going out as carpenters and blacksmiths and tailors and all over the world and going to Eskimos and going to the Indians and going to the Chinese and just insane stuff where the Moravians just went where nobody wanted to go. Um, and they were the first Christian uh, Protestant missionaries to do it. Um, so uh, before William Carey even, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but William Carey went in the first one and <laughs> John Wesley. John Wesley was greatly influenced by the Moravians and by their faith. And interesting move of God. And so you see these movements even today where these you have these church playing movements where they're just in West Africa and in, and in northern India. And you see places, even Iran, uh, where there's just multiplying churches and there's movement. And so there's four phases of movement. That, that have been studied by missiologists. And the reason that's important is because sometimes the problem is that we want to get to that movement phase, but we don't realize where we are because we're not pre-movement at this point in the United States. We're actually post-movement. We've had several moves of God, and we're kind of like, uh, you know, post-movement, post-Christian, post-whatever, but the church is still here. We're not in a place where there is no gospel, where there is no church, and so sometimes we want to look at the church and make it change so we can have movement. The truth is that God's going to bring movement out of the church, and parts of the church are going to fight it because that's always what happens, always what happens. I mean, you look at whatever great revival, the next revival that comes up, the people who or came out of the first revival, will fight the second revival because by this time they're like, hey, that's not how we do it. You know, they've become institutionalized or fossilized or however you want to call it. They, here's the thing. We need to recognize that there are movements. And, you know, as people talk about, you know, well, you know, if God's really in it, how can it wane and fade? Well, if God's really in summer, how's winter ever happen? Like, what's up with that? If God's really in growth, everything's got to grow, man. It's got to grow. If it's not grow, it's alive. It's, you know, yeah, well, it's January. Ain't Jack growing, man. Ain't nothing on the trees. The grass is dead. So God gave up on us, right? So God's word didn't work and seeds are no use. And no, man, there's seasons. There are seasons and there are movements. And movements have a lifespan. And God, there's a sovereignty of God in all this where God is the instigator. Okay, God, the Holy Spirit is the incubator of these things. But at the same time, our God, our job is to, is to respond. And I am, I am a, a swing Armenian on this, guys. I am free will. I hope I didn't lose any listeners there. But I do believe in free will, and I don't believe that negates the sovereignty of God. I just think it, it, it shows the amazing intellect and wisdom of God that He can be completely sovereign and delegate some of that sovereignty on purpose to his people who are made in his image and at the same time still get exactly what he wants because he understands 
what we will do and how we will do, and he understands. He knows exactly what we're going to do before we do it. So anyway, nevertheless, we respond. And I do believe that there have been times that you see in Scripture where, you know, even Jesus gets up and says, look, man, how, how often have I wanted to draw you in, but you just wouldn't come? Well, that's Jesus talking, you know, and that's like, I'm sorry, but he's the express image of the Father. So revival is, is, is not on God's end of saying, you know, God just didn't want to have revival, but God brings about special times and seasons of refreshing for the church that cause the world to begin to be evangelized again. So these movements, these revivals, whatever you want to call them, there's four stages of movement. And this is from missiologists, and you can find this all over the place if you dig up four stages of movement. The first stage is pre-movement, and that's, let's say you got dropped into a place, and you're, you're going to share the gospel, and you got dropped into uh, some some place on the backside of, of uh, you know, of Tibet, and there's no... Like, literally, you don't even know a gospel witness in that region. Like, you don't even know of a Christian in that region. And there you are, you show up. So quite often, movement is started by an outsider who's a catalyst who comes in and begins to sow gospel seed, usually begins to pray. And sometimes that first stage will last a year. Sometimes it lasts 50 years. You know, you, know, you, you, uh, you don't know. And you just begin to sow seed and sow seed and sow seed. And so when that first convert comes, that first person who believes the gospel and receives eternal life and is changed, that you're, you're like pouring everything into that person. So it really begins into disciple making, you know, and, and training that person and modeling for that person how to, how to live. But then what happens is things begin to accelerate when you model for somebody who is an indigenous person then then they went, it, it might take you 20 years to get a soul, but it takes them, you know, 20 days because they are part of the culture. All of a sudden, now they're, they're winning people faster than you will and than, than the outsider will. And when it comes to the point where you begin to have two or three disciples and you gather those people together into some form of church. Now in this place, in this stage, you know, church is very simple. It's probably in a house. It's in some place that's, you know, free. Uh, there's no budget, there's no money, there's no jack, you know, and, and so then you begin to see, uh, you know, disciples who make disciples and those disciples make disciples. And then you see churches that plant churches. And from that, another church comes because I mean, when you're in houses, it forces multiplication because, you know, there's just not enough room and people just, you know, you kind of like, well, let's, you know, we're going to start something in this guy's house, you know, we're going to do this. We're going to reach out to this person's neighborhood. And, and so this begins to happen. Well, when you get to this interesting phase called movement, a lot of missiologists like to term it from four, four generations. I like four generations because I find it in scripture first, uh, in second Timothy, second Timothy two, two, where Paul told Timothy, the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, I want you to share with faithful men who will be able to to pass it on and share it to others also, teach others also. And uh, and so the thing about that is it's Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others also. So there's four generations. So there's this idea already that that whatever is worth teaching among many witnesses, Paul didn't say, tell them everything I know, tell them everything I ever told you. He said, you tell them the stuff that I always say when we're in a crowd. In other words, the stuff that Paul thought was important enough to share with the congregation. 
constantly. He said, the things that I'm teaching the congregation, those things need to be passed on to four generations. And so you make sure the fourth generation gets it. That's, that's movement. When you get four generations of churches, four generations of disciples, that's movement. In this stage, you're going to see a lot of things are very, you know, first of all, uh, the priesthood of the believer is like exponential because, you know, just like in the New Testament, the, the believers are baptizing believers, you know. Paul's like, I didn't, I didn't baptize any of y'all except for the house of Stephanus, you know. What? It's like, wait a minute, you know. And, and Jesus wasn't baptizing people. His disciples were baptizing people. And Paul's like, no, nah, my disciples baptize disciples. So these people, you know, are authorized to baptize. They're authorized to start churches and lead religious services in their home. So the priesthood of the believer is super high because it's not exclusive. It's, it's spread out. And so there's this very, very high uh, level of, uh, and it's increasing as people understand the authority that they've been given. It's like, you go and tell. You go make disciples. You go baptize. I mean, that's what the Great Commission is going to all the world. You know, as you go, as you go into all the world, you're supposed to take, you know, uh, tell everybody the good news and take everything that you know, that, that I taught you, it says baptize them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And whatever I taught you, you know, teach them to obey the things that, that I've showed you and taught you. And so we have this idea that somehow that that's like somehow like the apostle or something. But honestly, the early church took that as very, very, very uh, general to all believers. All believers are on a mission. All believers are baptizing. All believers are, are teaching, you know, it's the law of the kingdom. Whatsoever you've received, freely give. You know, freely receive, freely give. And that's the thing is, you know, so this starts happening. And in, in when you get to four generations of that, which cannot happen without people having permission and authorization and training to use what they've learned. Okay. It's not, don't try this at home. I'm a paid professional. It is, it is, look, bro, you are in the kingdom. You're an ambassador. You're born again. Yes. You're a new creation. Yes. You're also an ambassador. You've been authorized by the king to do business for the kingdom. And so, whoa, dude, now I'm a, you're in the ministry now, Charlie Brown. And that is one of the seeds of movement. And that's one of the things that you don't find in the institutional church. And so we'll get to that here in a minute. But the first stage of pre-movement is you have somebody coming in, sowing the gospel like abundant, like crazy, like insane gospel sowing and modeling until you get four generations of indigenous peoples, of the people in that community, people in that, that, that demographic, people that are in that local uh, locality, whatever it is, you know, that, that, that segment of people that you're believing God for movement to come about. And so we have that uh, going on. Then when it gets to the fourth generation, like I said, the, the, it's very simple. The meetings are simple. The doctrine is simple. The... Uh, you know, the, the structure is simple. Uh, the goals are simple. We're going to tell everybody and, and everybody that, you know, when they come to Jesus, we're going to get them you know, involved and we're going to teach them in our homes. We're going to, you know, break bread and talk about the apostles' doctrine and, and, uh, and you know, we're going to pray together, you know, give ourselves to prayer. Well, that sounds a lot like Acts chapter 2. And so a movement starts super simple, unencumbered by a lot of restrictions because it's it's all basically all you have is just people and the word of god and the holy spirit moving and that's it that's all you got you know you just you meet where you meet by the river if you're paul you might have a meeting by the river at some point you know i mean so it, you just do what you can do 
so then as things begin to progress, you're, you're getting into uh, what we call movement. The second stage is the first is pre-movement, and then you get into movement. Now you've hit four generations of disciples making disciples, churches planting churches. And, um, you know, and some people are like, well, you need at least, you know, four strands of four generations or, you know, a hundred strands or has to be at least a thousand people. Hey, look, we can argue about all that. But once once you've done it four times, if you've got if you've taught somebody so well that they taught somebody so well that they taught somebody so well that they taught somebody, at that point you're 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 playing with some movement some movement strategy. You got some DNA for movement that's in the program. So the the you know the priesthood of the believer is increasing. People are understanding their ability to actually serve as as ministers of the gospel. Uh, just as a believer, and also the authority of the believers increasing where people understand their authority. They begin to understand that I can pray and God answers, not because I'm somebody special or not because I'm cocky, but because Jesus said whatsoever things you desire when you pray, ask. I mean, he says it binded on, he- uh, in, in, uh, on earth to be bound in heaven, loosened on earth to be loosened in heaven, and the Bible teaches these things. And when you look at those, those are in combination. Those scriptures are always in conjunction with gospel preaching, of taking the gospel to the world, there was never this idea of I'm just going to give you a magic genie in a bottle and you know or a lucky rabbit's foot. You just say the name of Jesus after your prayer, and it's going to have to happen no matter what it is. There's this idea of it's about mission. Whatever you need to do the mission, just say it. I'll I'll bring it, and I have found that true in my life. Um, and so anyway, side note. So then get into movement. Now in movement, you do have some simple. Buildings, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit of simple buildings show up. You know, some maybe maybe they're tabernacles in the wilderness. You know, whatever they are, but there, there's some simple buildings. And so most most of the congregations are meeting in houses uh, or in public, you know, places where they can that are free access. But there's some congregations that have started to, to build buildings, and that's not a terrible thing. Some people are like, as soon as you have a church building, you know, the whole church goes to hell. Well, no, I, I don't believe that. I mean, you know, they 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 met in the temple. They met in uh, the school of Tyrannus and different places. We have a couple of localities that are mentioned in the scripture, but um, this in movement, those things are not encumbersome. They're not. You're not spending you know decades of paying off buildings that you built. You know, it's just you put up what you can put up, and you have a place to get out of the rain and get out of the snow, uh, get out of the heat, whatever it is. And so, and priesthood of the believers like an all time high. It's like peaking. Uh, the authority of the believers peaking. Uh, simple tools begin to, to begin to emerge during movement. What happens is that the outsider comes in, the missionary, uh, the apostle, whoever you want to call this person, the catalyst, my favorite word, comes in and they have their own ways that they try to explain the gospel and scriptures that they like to use and Bible stories that they prefer to share with the lost. But what happens is now the locals are sharing with the locals and they determine the tools. They understand, they begin to find out what works in their culture and in their context and they contextualize the gospel. They don't change the gospel, but the the approach, the way it's presented is going to be different in every culture. And so now you've got this thing where, where they've got simple tools of they've got simple rhythms. Paul talked about uh, Timothy knows my traditions. Paul talked about Titus knows my traditions. Uh, you know, th- those kind of things went on 
uh, with, with the ways. You know, Paul talked about my ways, my traditions. And he had simple rhythms that he used. Well, the, you'll find that in every movement, whether it's, you know, the Methodist class, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, Neil Cole and accountability groups and things that he's doing right there, the D groups and stuff like that. Uh, and, and, you know, there's all these kind of things that, that, you know, every movement has its own, uh, rhythms and has its own tools and has its own, you know, phrases that, that help people remember things that are important and things that are valuable, you know, uh, in the, in, they're encapsulated in their rhythm of, uh, in their practices, in their habits, it's encapsulated in their language. And so these things begin to happen during movement. And so, you know, if you've ever been a part of a movement, even if it wasn't a Christian movement, it was just some kind of like, you know, you know, like gamer movement or something. It's funny, you, you run into somebody else who's been in that same movement and you can tell immediately, oh, you, you know, we've been exposed to the same, to the same virus, guys. You know, we, we, you can tell by the way they talk and the way they respond, like, oh, this guy knows about this thing, you know. And uh, there's kind of, you know, there's, it, becomes, it becomes a culture about the movement that is encapsulated around the key, the key activities and the key values that keep the movement multiplying. And so during this time uh, of movement, you do begin to see um, some, 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 some teachers come out. You know, and as far as the fivefold ministry, is the whole thing starts off with apostles, prophets, and evangelists. And that's the way every movement starts. You know, you don't get teachers. Teachers don't start movements. They start heresies. Anyway, um, hey, don't hate. Don't hate. Don't hate. People are like, what if the lay people start heresies? Well, until they go to Bible college, how are they going to find out about a heresy? You goof nut. Anyway, all the heresies I know about came from teachers. Uh, that's why the Bible talks about they can have greater judgment. So are you against teacher? No, I do teach, and I am apt to teach, and I love to teach. But you got to do so with fear and trembling because teachers, uh, teachers swing hard into sit still and think, and no movement gets started with sit still and think. And so uh, that'll come later. Now, look, we need teachers. The Bible says that God gave us teachers. Jesus himself was a great teacher. So if you're a teacher, don't be offended. But if you are an offended teacher, well, you probably were before I met you anyway. So I can't fix you. But the apes, the apostles, prophets, and evangelists are the ones that are going out. And, and they're the ones that launch movements. And that's the way it always starts. So it happened in the Bible. Every place you go, there's the, the, these people, you know, they, they're, they're, not, they're just not homesteaders, man. They're not going to just sit there and just stay in the same place forever. They're usually itinerant. They come in. They're not, they're not, they're not there forever. And so during this movement phase, you begin to see some, some stability, some, some buildings pop up and that's not evil. You also begin to see shepherds. We say pastor, but the word literally means shepherd in the Greek and the word pastor actually is shepherd in Spanish. But anyway, but we see shepherds and teachers begin to come out during a movement. And that is absolutely God's plan, and it's absolutely necessary. And, and so these, these people are, are absolutely necessary to balance out the apes. Because you can't just go ape, you know, just can't go ape all the time. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, the apes get loud, and, and the shepherd's teachers will show up and go, like, hush. Anyway, but um, I'm, I'm not against shepherds or teachers. Like I said, I love to teach. Teaching is actually one of the funnest things I do. But I recognize that when it comes to movement, movement is unstable. Movement is unpredictable. Movement's on the road. Movement is relentless. Movement just keeps going and going and going and going. 
Movement doesn't have time to deal with the details. Movement's about doing your gross motor skills. It's like win souls, make disciples. Win souls, make disciples. Gather them together. Plant churches. Your fine motor skills about, you know, like, wait a minute, we have to decide, is this movement Arminian or is it, or is it Calvinist? We got to understand what kind of theology we have and we have to understand what kind of, you know, are we covenant theology? Are we dispensationalism? Oh, we don't know. Well, you know, you go to any movement in the world, they don't know and they don't care. They're like, well, I don't know. My brother's lost. I'm praying until he gets saved. I'm fasting for him today. We're all having a prayer meeting. We're going to pray all night till my brother repents and comes to Jesus. And, and uh, when he does, we're going to train him. I mean, that's so movement's different. Movement's different, okay? And so you get this really, you know, some people call it the sweet spot. I, I really like that. where it's, it's where all of a sudden now you've got all those things where there are some places that are more stable and you've got some buildings and you've got some places to come and you can actually start getting great teachers and pastors rising up where these guys are at these churches and quite often they're teachers that that begin the congregation start to get a little bigger people begin to gather together and and those things now uh and that's not a bad thing that's a sweet spot of movement uh because that you have all five of the of the of the ministries happening at one time and i really believe that paul did that in a tremendous way uh the bible talks about that in acts 13 there were certain prophets and teachers that were meeting. It didn't say anything about apostles. There weren't any apostles in the room. Apostles says there were pastors, uh, prophets and teachers, prophets and teachers. And then all of a sudden God called, uh, you know, told Paul and Barnabas to go out to the ministry he called them to. Now they already were called. He was called to be an apostle from his conversion, from meeting Jesus. He was called to go into the nations. Here he was, you know, 14 years later or however many years later it was in Antioch. And he's a prophet or a teacher because the Bible says there were prophets and teachers having a meeting. And so um, and then he moved into apostolic ministry because those are functions. Don't put on your apostle hat and go start telling everybody what to do. That's dumb. If you want to go put on your apostle hat, go out there and get you a shovel and dig a foundation because apostles are a foundation from which other ministries could operate. And when the apostles do their job properly, then you see prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers popping out of that work because there's a foundation that they can build upon, Okay. And so the apostle goes and breaks ground and builds foundations and, and, and establishes churches where there was no church, establishes Christian community where there was no Christian community. So anyway, so, so, so that's a function. But so Paul operated as a prophet or a teacher while reading the scriptures. If he was a prophet or a teacher, I have a feeling at least for sure he was a teacher, uh, probably a prophet too at times, but he was a teacher 100%. And so the school of Tyrannus, I really believe with all my heart, Paul was at the school of Tyrannus teaching. You know, he could have been preaching, but, you know, and some people have this idea that all of Asia heard because they all came to the school of Tyrannus. That don't make sense because you're looking at the lowest estimate I've heard is four and a half million. Highest is 15 million. But you got millions of people in Asia Minor. And this is a building that is like, you know, like a 150 seat auditorium, uh, you know, in two years. If you filled it up every day for two years, twice a day it wouldn't come close to everybody in Asia Minor hearing the gospel. So I don't think they were coming to hear some great evangelist. I believe that there were people launched out because we do see in the scriptures where people left Ephesus and planted churches. The churches of Asia were planted during that movement, during that movement. And Paul wasn't the one doing all the church planting at Colossae or Hierapolis or Laodicea or any of those other places that are mentioned. 
you know, we have we have letters to these people that are mentioned, and some of the letters we don't have are mentioned that there was a letter, you know, to these different people, and they came from Paul writing teaching letters from uh, from Ephesus, and so he became he settled down into a teaching catalyst kind of mode where he wasn't actually going ape like he was before and going out there and doing it, even though he obviously was an apostle, he was teaching and he was passing off that authority, passing off that priesthood, empowering people and training people and launching people to go out and do what he was doing. So instead of Paul going in and doing his deal, Paul and Barnabas or Paul and Silas or whoever going in and doing their deal, now there's teams of men and women going forth from Ephesus who have been not only seen the example and the modeling of Paul planting the Ephesian church, or some people he'd say he didn't plant the Ephesian church, but there was, I believe he planted the Ephesian church. I mean, actually there was a lot of seed in the ground and there was a lot of things going on before Paul launched what you see happen in, in Acts 19. But Paul is the one that organized that thing and whipped it into shape, made it a church. It was, it was a loose group of disciples and Paul really, uh, it, it, he catalyzed it for sure. He was a catalyst in that situation, and it began to multiply. And so there's the teaching role in that situation. That's where, that's where I'm, I'm getting this from the Scripture. Uh, and so in, in missiologists see the same thing, where now teachers begin to arise. And, and that's good because at this point, now that the, the thing's moving and, we, and it's not in survival mode, but it's thriving, now it's time to do some fine-tuning and make sure that we're preaching the right thing and believing the right thing and you don't get in some kind of modalism or some kind of crazy, you know, something where you're denying the deity of Christ or, or whatever, you know. Um, you you want to make sure that there's sound doctrine. And so teaching is super important there. So you're in movement. It's a sweet spot where now you do have, you know, you have a lot of, you know, churches that are just kind of like baby churches being popped off all over the place. Some churches have grown up to become established churches and maybe own a little property. And then you get into what's, uh, and and then, you know, this is the, when you go into the third stage of movement, it's called it's what we call formation. And this is where in formation now the majority of churches have some kind of a building and most of them have a teacher hanging out, you know, like on staff, a pastor or somebody like that. You know, which a lot of pastors are teachers, some pastors are evangelists, and some you know, some pastors are just pastors. <laughs> so it ain't nothing wrong with that at all. Some teachers call themselves pastors and some evangelists call themselves pastors and they never pastored anybody. They don't shepherd anybody. They just get up there and preach like crazy and have people on staff that shepherd the people. And, you know, well, these are functions. These are functions. A lot of times we play loose with the name. And if you live in the United States, everybody's a pastor. If you do anything for Jesus, you're a pastor, you know. And, uh, well, that's not a function that everybody fulfills so we we have this formation and during formation you kind of start seeing tapering off of the priesthood of the believer and authority of the believer because it's there's a lot you know you walk in and it's not in circles anymore it's it's moving into rows because we in circles everybody's got something to say everybody's got something to share but in rows we're like you know this guy's hey can y'all just shut up and listen to this guy because he's he knows what he's talking about this guy right here, man, that dude right there, he knows what he's talking about, man. I got right there. You got to know that sometimes that's awesome, and sometimes you actually begin to give the impression of, you know, we, we get into this, you know, well, maybe, you know, maybe I'm not, I don't need to really share what's what I'm thinking because this guy's got it covered. 
And so you begin to imperceptibly see the priesthood of the believer and the authority of the believer go down, that their, their authority to do the ministry. Because now we get more people who are more specialized in ministry. And you start to see some people who are earlier, you had no paid clergy. And now you're starting to get people, congregations who are able to, to, to not only build facilities, but to pay preachers. And I'm not against paying preachers. And Paul makes it clear that it's okay. It's not wrong for, for a minister to take a salary. And as a matter of fact, it's the right thing to do for a congregation to, to, uh, to take care of their, their ministers. But Paul also, you know, he worked <laughs> with the labor of his own hands. He said, not only did it pay for me, but my company, the people that were with him were supported. So Paul wasn't barely making it. Paul had a thriving business and Paul was like bankrolling him and everybody with him to do missions, which is just an amazing idea. Anyway, let's just keep this going. So then we get into formation. So all of a sudden now we get, you know, uh, all the, we get congregations that are more established. And what starts happening, especially with the introduction of teachers, uh, which I'm not against teachers because they're so vital. They're so vital. But at the same time, you have to also recognize that the Bible never talks about, you know, watch out for false evangelists. Whoa, false evangelists. You know, talks a lot about watching out for false teachers and false prophets. You got to keep an eye on both of those guys. So, um, so the so these teachers, you begin to have co- you know coalitions and, and groups and camps and need I say denominations because of because now we're 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 clarifying you know uh, that oh no 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 we don't really believe it that way and we believe it this way and so movements start to have denominations stuff come out of them and um, it's like you look at the Pentecostal movement which started. You know, a couple of different places. It kind of started in North Carolina, started in Azusa Street. Uh, there was actually a movement in South Arkansas before any of that happened where people were, you know, experiencing the baptism of the Spirit with speaking in other tongues, and that was spreading. And it's kind of like God was just moving all over the world, but those things really erupted in the United States around 1906, early 1900s. But Azusa really was the one that kind of like still is going, and now it's, you know, the Pentecostal movement's become the fastest-growing, most expansive uh, Christian movement in the history of the church. A lot of a lot of scholars don't want to talk about it because it's kind of not cool. But you know, it's it's a hundred years from now they'll be like, what the heck? How did they do that? Well, one of the things that happened is it started off in one place, and you had blacks wor- worshiping, whites worshiping together. You had people, Presbyterian, Baptist, all these different people worshiping together, experiencing God together, going out on mission. And uh, just it, it, it was really very fluid because it was a move of God. But then later, you know, as they got, you know, things began to settle down a little bit. They looked around and go, wait a minute, I'm not like that guy. And you wound up with like predominantly uh, white and predominantly African-American groups and predominantly uh, people that were just, you know, uh, that believed in in uh, kind of a Baptist idea of progressive sanctification. You had the people who came out of the Wesleyan holiness movement of who believed in perfection, the, the, the second blessing and these different things. And so it became different groups. And, uh, and yeah, you did wind up with some, some heresy in there. And, uh, you know, and, and so you get some old fashioned modalism or, uh, you know, the oneness stuff going out there, which honest is just, you know, you have to really beat the Bible pretty hard and twist it and make it, cry a little bit before you can get anything like that out of it. So I probably just made somebody else mad, but I'm trying to help you, brother. But uh, but how did that start? It started with a, with a teacher in California. Uh, so anyway, sorry, didn't, sorry. Anyway, you got to be careful that we, that the teachers are submissive to the rest 
of the group that they don't think that they are the apex. You know, teachers always accuse apostles of thinking that they're in charge of everything. And the truth is, teachers are just as bad about being arrogant as anybody else. And actually, all ministers tend to be arrogant. And the way that you can overcome arrogance is to get in the harvest. Help me, Jesus. Get out there and talk to some people. Knock some doors. Go out and visit some people. And, you know, go go witness to a demon-possessed uh, transgender biker, you know, who's suicidal. Go talk to that guy, you know, and, and talk to him about what's going on in his life and minister the gospel to them. You go out into the harvest and it's amazing how, uh, you know, it'll keep you humble because there's such opposition and it's, and it's so hard and you're reminded every day, literally, I am not qualified. I cannot do this. Only God can change these people. Only God can do this. Only God can save a soul. And you're constantly reminded that you're just a tool. You're just a tool. Like, dear God, if you don't use me, there's no way this is going to happen because I can't do this myself. And so uh, that's my little side note for all apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. If you're not regularly in the harvest, then uh, then you're jacked up. And so people will say, well, I'm a teacher. You know, I'm not called to the harvest. Bah humbug. The Great Commission is for everybody. That's like saying a Christian's like, well, I don't have the gift of intercession. I'm not called to pray. Oh, don't be ridiculous. All Christians are called to pray. All Christians are called to witness. So we're having a movement. Woo! Okay, we got this movement going on. And uh, part of the movement thing that's happening is we've got formation. Now we've got denominations. We, now we've got established buildings. You see your first mega churches popping up. We're very large congregations with very affluent uh, pastors, teachers, whoever they are running the thing. And, and also you start seeing something else. We go into, then we slide into what's called the institutional church. That's where everybody's accepted the church. And I'm going to bring in some more about that momentarily. Hey, this is Jimmy Malone in the trenches. Just want to just let you guys know, I've got a new website I'm working on just so people can keep up with what I'm doing. I don't, I'm not pastoring a church. I'm, I'm uh, running hard to catalyze movement, to train disciple makers, open to do that. Call me. I could, I'd love to talk to you. Come, for, come to your church. At, uh, you know, I don't need an offering, just whatever's going on. But if you want to know what's going on in our ministry or support the ministry, you can go to malonesonmission.com. That's M-A-L-O-N-E-S-O-N-M-I-S-S-I-O-N. Dot com, And uh, just, it's a way to keep up with us. And there's a place to, yes, there's a place to support the ministry through our local church. You can click it and it'll bring you to my local church and you can push pay and go down to the bottom tab. It says Malone. Tap that and you can support our ministry directly. Or I'd love emails or anything else you, you guys want to reach out to us. So just want to let you know how to keep up with the Malones on mission here in the trenches. So um, we come to the, the fourth phase of movement, which is called the institutional church. Uh, this is uh, where church is not just about a group of people gathering together. It's, uh, it, you got property and you got bylaws and you got denominational expectations and you got uh, seminaries. And let's talk about some differences with the institutional church. The institutional church has won the favor of the community. They've um, they built hospitals and they've built orphanages and they've done these things and they literally 
are in the esteem of the people. Like they, they, the, 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 we have entered Christendom. There's a, as a Christianization of the culture to where churches are given special favor and special uh, opportunities. And even like today, you know, people are like, well, everybody hates the church. Well, you, you know, if the pastor has a housing allowance, that's because the government has decided that he's adding value to the society by being a pastor, and they're giving him a tax break. You know, and uh, most of the big uh, churches downtown in most of our larger cities, you know, their attendance is down from what it was, and it's peaked off, it's plateaued, it's dropped. And they got these beautiful structures, but if they had to pay property taxes, and there's a lot of people asking for that. I mean, that comes up pretty regular now. People trying to push for what we need to tax the churches. If they started taxing the income of churches and taxing the property of churches, a lot of these churches would have to shut down or at the very least let go a lot of staff uh, just to maintain their property because we have favor. And so we're still in the institutional church, but it's a waning version of the institutional church. It's in decline, and it, and it won't be long, and, you know, the, the, the culture will not be favoring the church. And, the, as a matter of fact, there's a, uh, the, the privileges— that the church as an institution, as a corporation, hold, uh, some of those things are, are going to be eroded at some point. And, um, but one thing for sure has happened is we're declining in numbers, and we're declining in zeal, we're declining in doctrinal st uh, standards, you know, people allowing all kind of crazy, unbiblical stuff happening, and, and just, you know, whatever you feel like, that's just, that's just what we're preaching, you know, and, and uh, there's no standard. And it, it's not the same in every denomination, but you see the same pattern in every movement. The institutional church, uh, you have, a, here's some differences. In the beginning, uh, you know, all the training is done in the church. All the disciple making is done in the church uh, by the people, you know. And so there's a priesthood of the believers where everybody is, you know, whatever, you know, everybody, is, everybody gets to play. You know, how is it when you come together, everybody has a hymn, everybody has a song, has a word, has a tongue, has an interpretation, has a revelation. Okay, so so this is the, the, this this biblical idea of of everybody participating. Well, it gets to where you know this is only for professionals. Do not try this at home. And if someone feels called to to ministry, we have to export them. There's nobody in house who can do it. We have to send them out to a seminary uh, or to some kind of institution to get formally trained and certified, and then sent back because uh, the 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 authority to act has been taken further and further and further away from the from the grassroots level and the established church we have uh, lots of finances and lots of established properties and things and and you have to think about the property and you have to think about things like that and you have to maintain the property and you have to make sure you make the people who are paying for the property happy because if you lose them then you can't make your payments or you can't uh, you maintain your building or or whatever it, it, it gets to where the, the mission of the church gets lost. The, the maintaining of the establishment, the maintaining of the institution is the foremost thing. In the beginning, it's all about mission. There's nothing. It's all about mission. And then during movement, it's still all about mission. But the, but the number of people working toward mission becomes movement. See, you, you know, a movement is not four gifted people doing a thousand things. A movement is a thousand people consistently devoted to doing four things just a few things and doing them consistently and uh, so you, a movement is is when you take you can take things that are reproducible and it, everybody gets to play and so uh, you see in the the, the the 
by the time we get to an established church, there is an inertia to stay still. You know, the law of inertia is that an object in motion tends to stay in motion until acted upon by an outside force. But inversely, it's also an object, an object at rest tends to stay at rest. And so one of the things that happened is the APEST groups have all gone out. The this, this, this shepherd teachers have taken over the established church because they are establishers. They like to be established. And they've taken over the institutional church and they've they've built these you know large buildings where everybody can just sit still and listen to the teaching that's going on. And, uh, and, and we've organized, uh, now, now the pastoral care is organized and, and matriculated through programs and um, in, 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 but of highly paid professionals and maybe a few volunteers, but there's staff people who are paid more than the pastor of a small church just to be in charge of some part of pastoral care, you know, and, uh, and that kind of thing happens. And so, uh, but, but when your kids are raised in an institution, that's called an orphanage. And so the, the, the institutional church, uh, there, there's a, it's not, it doesn't feel like a faith family as much as it feels like a building, uh, a holy place, a sacred place that we must come and honor the traditions thereof and keep it going for the sake of keeping it going. We got to keep this thing going because it was grandma's church, you know. Um, and not to say it's all bad. Tremendous people in the staff in the uh, in the institutional church. The average believer sitting in the pews of the institutional church knows more scripture than the leader of a church in a in a in a growing movement. Okay, they've had they've heard more exegesis and more, uh, you know, hermeneutically and homiletically correct messages than anybody in a movement, and they understand the differences of theological nuance and they've heard all these things until there's decline and then nobody knows the word. But at, at its height, at its best, institutional church is extremely good at teaching. It's kind of like the Ephesian church in the. Um, in, in the book of Revelation where you get the, the revelation of Jesus Christ and he's given these uh, messages to the churches and to the Ephesian church, he said, you don't put up with, with, with false doctrine. Uh, you know, but the only thing I have against you is you've left your first works. It's not that they were doing bad things and they had a tremendous high standard and they had integrity and they had doctrinal uh, integrity and they were sound, but they had left off the, the desperate prayer and gospel sowing and evangelizing because there's nothing else to evangelize. I mean, the Christian, the culture's become Christian, and now if somebody wants to go to church, they just get up and go to church. You don't have to go reach them. They just, man, if they, if they want to go to church, they can just do it. And it, the kind of idea is everything is centralized. All the gospel sowing is inside the building and on the property. All of the, the you know, disciple making is inside the building and on the property. Uh, the leadership training has been delegated in most cases to to a seminary somewhere, uh, uh, you know, and then we'll bring them back after they've had their, you know, uh, they've been spiritually lobotomized and, you know, bring, I'm sorry. There's a lot of great seminaries out there, but unfortunately, a lot of times people come back further from the harvest and further from the, the work. And I'm sorry, because I'm, I am not unbiased. I, in all discretion, I, I'm extremely biased toward the harvest. I'm extremely biased toward evangelism, disciple making, and multiplying uh, trained believers into the harvest to win the to to win the, the world to Jesus, um, and so the thing is, the institutional church we don't want to throw rocks at Jesus' bride. This is Jesus' bride, but I, I I do believe that you know that there's a you know that there's a lot in the Bible that talks about you know that that there's a there there's a 
we have to get back to our first works. And sometimes you can appear to be alive and actually be dead. And there are some churches that that's where they get. That's where it's, it's going to. And you just look at all the, all the cathedrals that are now museums in Europe, uh, which was the bastion of Christianity. Uh, many people who, who uh, you know, teach colonialism and all this kind of stuff and a lot of, a lot of different, uh, you know, liberal ideas that everybody's a victim. I'll come out with this idea that basically associate a European uh, culture with Christianity because they were so melded together because Christianity was such, uh, had such a hold in Europe. But then it became institutionalized, and then it became the government church, you know, the national church. And these beautiful buildings that took, you know, hundreds of years in some cases to build and were, you know, hundreds of years old that are stone. And, you know, you couldn't reproduce. It cost you a billion dollars to make them in today's um, economy. You know, they were made back in the Middle Ages. And, and some of these places are gorgeous, but they're, they're museums. They're museums. There are nobody making souls, souls or making disciples there. There's no multiplication of the church going on there. The Great Commission doesn't happen there. People just show up and, and just look at it and say, wow, what a beautiful what a beautiful architecture. So the arts flourish in the institutional church. Resources flourish in the institutional church. Uh, good works flourish in the institutional church of, you know, uh, you know, halfway houses and orphanages and and, uh, and and homeless shelters and all these things that because they, they can do things. And so there's a lot of good that can come from the institutional church. And we need to recognize that that's a season. But in America, we're getting to the place we've, we, if you want to know where America's going, look at Europe because they're just a few, a couple, you know, a couple decades ahead of us. And it's getting to where, you know, there's fewer and fewer Christians in the setting. And then you get to places like in Europe right now is like one of the least evangelized places in the world because everybody thinks they've heard the gospel. But there's the, the born again believers are like, you know, three percent of the population in most of these countries, and and so there, we need a revival. We need a movement, okay, to win the people, the people that God, the, the lost people of this generation. So we need a move of God, and so we don't want to come against the institutional church. But just looking at uh, church structure, uh, it starts off with no church, and then you begin as you grow and gather people. You have very very simple churches, reproducible churches. Then in movement, you have not only reproducible churches, but you have a pattern of meaning where they have habits or traditions. Paul talks about his traditions, his ways. And uh, every movement's a little different. Uh, you know, God emphasizes different things in different places, and it, those things are in context with where they are. But, but you have this idea that, that, you know, there's just anybody can have church. Any believer can have church. Uh, you just, if you get together and do the stuff, then it's a church. You know, you don't have to have a building. You don't have to have paid clergy. You don't have to have any of these things. You know, Paul came back uh, after, at the end of his first missionary journey, him and Barnabas went back through and strengthened the brethren, prayed and fasted, and uh, ordained elders, appointed elders, and committed them to the Lord. The question is, was it a church there before they ordained elders? Yes. Yes, they came back to the churches. They came back. There were churches there that did not have ordained elders, and, and Paul ordained an elder. So is ordination wrong? No, it's in the Bible. But is it you have to have an ordained minister to have church? Absolutely not. And so um, we see this, this thing about the established church. And so what we don't want to do is be raised in the established church, and we want to create movement. And so I've seen people, and I've done this. Let me just tell you, this is confessions of a church planner. I have absolutely come in with some movement strategy and seen some movement stuff happening, seen some things going on that, that you know, God's things start moving and jump straight into an institutional paradigm where I got a building. Now, some, here's another thing. You can't raise money to start a house church, but they'll give you money to start a building. 
And I'm like, well, I got money. To, I got money to rent a building. I may as well do it, right? I mean, it, it's it's kind of a uh, concentric circle here, you know, uh, circular firing squad. And so I've I've jumped from a movement mentality, a we're just meeting wherever we can and making disciples and on the street knocking doors mentality, to all of a sudden trying to take that thing and put it into a big box on Sunday morning and have a platform and get up there and preach to them and sit them in rows and and, and go straight to established church because it's the only thing I ever saw is all I knew and uh, and I heard about people in foreign countries doing stuff but you know it's like I never saw it and, and it doesn't work here that's just for foreign people you know uh, or for people in the Bible or for you know anybody but America right and so here's the, the thing I want to warn you about is you first of all love the established church love the institutional church love them it's full of strong believers train them if you can get them on fire just to win souls, teach them to do that. If you can just get them to pray, if you can just get a movement of prayer, God wants to move an institutional church, and God will move an institutional church. Don't throw rocks at them. But the other thing is, don't come in and do like institutional church light of like, hey, we're meeting in a house, but we're going to set it up exactly like Sunday morning service at the institutional church. You know, we're just going to have like a cheaper, low-budget version of the institutional church and call it revival because... You know, no, 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 no. We need a total paradigm change. We need to go for movement, which we need to lower the bar of what it means to to have uh, to have church, and we need to raise the bar on what it means to follow Jesus. Now, that's a Neil, uh, Neil Cole quote, so it wasn't me, but I love it. We need to lower the bar. Anybody can gather believers and have church, but you got to really have. You see, what we've done earlier is, is it's hard to start a church. Woo! You got to be qualified, raise money. But anybody can sit in a church and call themselves a Christian. No, no, no. How about this? Anybody can gather together and have church, but you got to lay down your life, take up your cross, and be devoted to the teaching and the practice of the gospel to be a Christian. Hmm. Talk a little bit more about this another time, but just want to let y'all know that uh, that's what's on my mind right now. Is I want to see a move of God. I'm in Southwest Arkansas. I'm aiming for a move of God here, believing for a move of God. Can't, there's nothing I can do to make God move, but I can get out of His way and let Him run because God is one pinup revival. God is not a caged lion; He's a wild lion, and I want to go where He goes. Right? Jesus is a radical revolutionary, and I am His disciple. And it's time to turn loose. The gospel, the word of God, the Holy Ghost, and the Savior, radical, table-turning, whip-making, you know, temple-cleansing Savior, loose right here in South Arkansas. But I'm also traveling and doing some things and training churches wherever I can go. And uh, and so just stay tuned. In the trenches, we're taking a taking a turn, going back to our roots, baby. Believe in God for a move of God. And if you're if you're that's where you are. Stay tuned. You're going to love where we're going. So come on.